Welcome back to TRP. Hi, and a warm welcome back to the Rustler podcast. Today we find Michael Freeman in conversation with Josie Van Emden. I'm absolutely delighted uh, and honoured and privileged to be in the august company of Josie Van Emden. Mm. Now, Josie is from... Where are you from, Josie? The wilds of Wicklow, originally. <laughs> and Via loads of other places. And in Wicklow, what part of Wicklow did you live in? Well, I was brought up, like, I lived and, and I was brought up near enough to Roundwood, above Devil's Glen Waterfall, riding ponies all day and being a wild child, yeah. And you actually worked in the catering business. Oh, long time ago, yeah, as a student and all that kind of stuff, yeah. And you met some of the world's famous, most famous actors mm. and film crew, yeah. all of that. Yeah, we would have all done that. Yeah, we would have been. Is it true that you met Daniel Day Lewis and Garth uh, (laughs) De Bruyne, not Garth Brooks? The Garth De Bruyne was a kind of a a local celebrity or a legend. You know, there was all these stories that he'd have the local pub closed down or, you know, and do a lock in with all his mates. (laughs) And I think all the teenagers were trying to get in on that one. But down where we grew up, like I grew up in a little cottage. Um, My parents were the idealistic hippie types, I suppose. And we lived on an acre and grew vegetables and had ponies and goats and chickens and all that. And Daniel Day-Lewis bought a beautiful Georgian house, you know, five miles away. You could sort of see it. And if he was having parties, there'd be laser light shows, you know. We didn't know what they were when we saw them the first time. But yeah, it was a lovely, idyllic kind of place to grow up, I think. And have you ever attended any of Daniel Day-Lewis parties? But you've met the film crew <laughs> and you knew them when they were all in town. Ah, yeah, there was all that crack going on, you oh, know. wonderful. And, um, yeah. And is it true that you have uh, a Dutch heritage? I mean, your mm. name Van Emden. Yeah. So my grandparents came here, I think it was 58 or 59. Um, my dad was a very small boy. And he had one older brother, so two small children. And Opa was a graphic, Opa is Dutch for grandfather. He was a graphic designer. And at the time, there was no real uh, graphics industry in Ireland for, you know, advertising and things like that. There were courses in fine art, but there weren't professional graphic designers as such. And there was a few Dutch fellas kind of offered jobs and brought over to start that off. And they went into work in advertising. So he worked in a place called Sun Advertising um, and would have, you know, would have done very well from having a pretty, you know, rough time of it after World War Two. They were both children during World War Two. They had, a, you know, umpteen stories. They would tell us, you know, 500 times. And but they ended up doing doing well for themselves and three sons mm-hmm. who all got professions and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, but dad has that surname and then mum is from New Zealand. So. <laughs> so you're multinational. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you're also from a very well-known media family. Ah, now. <laughs> I mean, your uncle Jan van Emden was a very well-known journalist. Yeah. And he's still going. He's um, he 
has a kind of a, a, a trade communications pro- company now. Um, and then my dad was RTE for years and Uncle Bert would have been similar kind of area. So it's kind of Did everyone, everyone fell around the same apple tree, if you know what I mean. Yes. Yeah. And did your dad work with uh, people like uh, Anne Doyle? Yeah, and then he Eileen would be Dunn. like, "Oh, I was crew." You know, he's he's very, um, you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't talk about that that much. But yeah, he was RTE for a long time, and they as all had as, a crack. as a sound man. Yeah, he's a sound man. Something like our James W. Cork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he would have worked in that for years. Okay, and yeah. would. Uh, Jim, who has worked on movies here and across the planet, would they have crossed paths? I don't know. They're very different worlds. Do you know what I mean? They're very different worlds. Mm-hmm. The only way I think that would happen is lads from RTE leaving RTE and then going and working in films, which Dad just never did. You know, um, he had his pals in there. He'd give out about it, but mm-hmm. he loved it, I think. So he would have met pe- great people like Mike Burns, the head of news, Michael Lally. I might well have when uh, I was little. Okay. Um, but I think I very quickly thought he wasn't very cool. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. So, Josie, mm. um, you then went to school, I presume? No, sure, I never went. No, I did, yeah, I did. But I was nuts. I, I quit school when I was quite youngish. Mm-hmm. And it was a bit wild for a couple of years. I went back and then went to university later okay. on, a little bit later on. You know. And you did a master's mm. in public cultures and arts management. My goodness, that's completely that's... useless. <laughs> well, when I came out, the year we graduated with that, that MA, I think there was eight or nine of us in it. Um, and it was really geared towards people working within uh, county councils as arts officers and all that kind of stuff. Um, the crash happened in 2008. And funding, there was a moratorium put on employing new people in those departments in the state. So we came out having no jobs. So I went into working in bookshops as a stopgap. So you <laughs> lasted for years and years. Yeah. Yeah. And did you like that work? Well, yeah, that's my you know, writing and books. And that was my original. And then you went on to work. Did you... At some stage, work with the famous Dubray. I worked with Dubray Books for eight or nine years, I think, and they would have trained me. Um, and I would, I worked for them in general books, and then in children's books, and did event management and things like that for them. They loved Dubray, you know. Uh, they were then in. Are they still in Bray? There are eight or nine of them now. There are eight or nine. Yeah, yeah. So retailer. it would have originally. I actually remember going into. Um, the Bray Bookshop, which was owned by Mrs. Clear and had a bell on the door and, you know, those whirly gigs. And she was lovely. Um, and her daughter was lovely as well. And the daughter took it over with a guy called Kevin Barry, who's her husband. He's gone now. He was an economist, I think, um, originally. But they expanded and became Dubray Books. And that's when I worked for them. So I worked in a few branches. but And you had fun. Yeah, we had loads of fun. Don't tell my managers that I had loads of fun. I remember going into work from my apartment in Glastool and kind of tottering up the road, having not been to sleep, <laughs> going in and, you know, doing orders with my head on the keyboard like this, 
But I loved it, you know. I loved meeting publishers, reps and customers and we had lots of... It was done Leary, so you had a lot of head the balls or customers that would be well-known writers or whatever coming in. When you saw them coming down the street, you'd run off and grab their books and put them in the window because they'd give out to you. I'm not naming names, but one guy in particular would give out to you really horribly. So we just used to go, we used to always have five or six copies of everything he'd done. And when he was known to be coming into the shopping centre, we'd pop them in the window, you know, because he didn't understand that the windows were planned months in advance. We just put them in there at the corner. Now it's going, yep, oh, that's lovely, it's in the window. I recall a friend of mine who uh, uh, published a book. Mm. And uh, he had somebody call into Eason's in O'Connell Street. Yeah. And uh, before you'd know it, uh, a whole shelf mm-hmm. would uh, display his copies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how it's done. Not always. It's not. It's yeah. It's, um, I know with Dubray, we would plan the windows a long time in advance. Mm-hmm. But if you have a local order, it's local to your shop and they're going to be sent, you know, you'd look after them. You, you would mm-hmm. always find extra space for them. And I think any bookshop's the same. So that's how you got into books and you spent eight or nine years in Dubray. And after Dubray, where did you go? I met a man and fell in love and moved to Cavan. Oh, my goodness. Which is a very strange thing to do. It is, actually. Yes. Yeah, on both counts. <laughs> and is it true that Cavan people eat their lunch out of their drawers? Probably. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an odd spot now. However, uh, were you in... The books trade yeah. in Cavan as well. Yeah. There was a beautiful, as as bookshops go, Cavan had one of the most beautiful independent bookshops that you'll ever walk into. I walked into this shop and it was like walking into something out of Harry Potter. It had beautiful teak bookshelves right up to the ceiling. Um, it had that gorgeous smell that you only get in secondhand bookshops, but it was a new bookshop. Um, everything was very higgledy-piggledy, but in the most kind of charming way. And that was John um, in Cranoke Books. In Cranoke Books? Cranoke Books. Oh, the they were famous. Shop. They're famous in the book trade. Yeah. yeah. So I worked for him while I lived there. Mm. And I had my first baby while I was working there. And I remember being up on bookshelves, you know, eight months pregnant at Christmas. <laughs> like Climbing up things, climbing under things. And they're like, what is she doing? You know. Because I just love that crack. But it was great there as well. It was lovely. That's a nice bookshop. He's gone now. He shut down. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was yeah. an amazing bookshop. Yeah. And I remember that we'd be kind of sitting on piles of books doing orders with reps or whatever. But he was really lovely. He's very and into his theatre. He's That's what he's... I think he's working for Druid now. Oh, for Druid? Mm, yeah. And after Cavan, mm. where did you go? We bought a house in Wexford. Well, now, that was a quantum leap yeah. of faith and... Well, not really, because I know Wexford from living from being Wicklow, I suppose. And we just knew Paul, my partner, being what he is, just wanted sheds that he mm. could work out of. So we found a house that had sheds and he was a bit too busy to come look at it. And I found it and went and had a look, put an offer in and it was accepted and he'd never seen it. Which was a bit scary. That's but he historic. did get to see it before he signed. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, Paul is also famous. 
Very famous. Yeah. He's a chainsaw massacre. <laughs> chainsaw exponent. massacre. No, he's, he's a chainsaw man. Um, he's a chainsaw sculptor. A chainsaw sculptor. Yeah. He's been featured in national newspapers mm. and on television and radio mm-hmm. and every place. Mm. We're getting them everywhere. Yeah. And uh, he sculpted. Am I using the mm. correct word? Yeah, carved, sculpted. Yeah. He sculpted uh, the fairy wood, is it, at Wells? Yeah, Wells has um, 38 of his pieces there. So they range from, there's a giant peacock, there's loads of birds of prey, which he's really good at. Um, and there's a huge dragon, which you can sit up on. It's a beautiful carved dragon. I was only there yesterday, actually. And um, pieces are looking good. So that took him a few months, but we just, he was just gone into it and he had a great time and it's lovely. And are there flames coming out of the dragon? No, it has giant red wings, which are made of cloth. Um, We weren't allowed the flames for health and safety, but it would have been cool to have a sensor on it to blow flames out of it, but it's cool. It has a red um, flame colored jewel in his chest, which is cool. Has Um, he got a name? uh, Draco. D-R-A-Y-K-O is the name of the dragon. We call it Draco. Yeah. And who named the poor dragon? I don't know. With I think the it was Paul. Name like Draco. Yeah. Draco. I think it was Paul. Okay. Yeah. Maybe it was Wells House people. But that's his name. Hmm. And you it's so big that you can sit up on it, you know, and it's great for photographs and all that jazz. I bet children love Draco. Yeah. Okay. I hope so. So Mm. You're living life to the full in Brie. Mm. Sleepy Brie. In Sleepy Brie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, sure, it's the centre of the universe. It I is. mean, it's the dead centre of County Wexford. Dead centre of County Wexford, yeah. 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 In the middle of the sunny southeast. Yeah. You couldn't be in a better place. I know. To grow um, my vegetables and my weeds. Lots of weeds growing in my garden. Yeah. And Josie, um, if... Uh, you love books of all kinds, but uh, especially what kind of books? I laugh about this because when we moved in first, somebody came into our house and immediately assumed that Eat, Love, Pray and all that other stuff was mine and that the political history and biography <laughs> was balls. I said, oh, your husband, he really likes that, doesn't he? And I'm like, they're all mine. And his are the Eat, Pray, Love um, spiritual books over there. <laughs> and, uh, ah, yeah. Um, what will I read? I read a lot of historical fiction. I'll read history, biography. Um, and strangely, I'll read kind of some, some science fiction type stuff. But it wouldn't be in the realm of Star Wars or any of that kind of rubbish. Or, you know, and it's very Margaret Atwood or you know, Philip K. Dick or something. I like that kind of dystopian science fiction. Um, but nothing, nothing with spaceships in it. I wouldn't be into spaceships now. Okay. But yeah, that's what I'll read. Isabel Allende as well. I love her. But I've, hmm. I've read, every, like I'll read anything. I'm not very particular about genre because I don't think you do yourself any favours. I've always marveled at that word. Everybody in the business uses that word, but I have found difficulty in genre. Yeah, in saying it. Oh yeah, is it genre or is it genre? I say genre. Genre. Yeah. Okay. 
Thanks very much for that. Two syllables. Uh, two said genre. Two said genre. Real mm. Irish. John Ray. <laughs> John Ray. Who's that? Uh, okay. If mm. people, uh, would you know if people were, th- uh, in your time in uh, the bookshops, mm. uh, have you had questions from people about writing and publishing? Yeah. Um, I think because I came into bookshops at a time when self-publishing was becoming a thing. We would get a lot of self-published authors talking to us. And you would get it with children's books. Um, But I do remember it happening. I do remember because of an interest in writing anyway. um, I would have happily chatted to people about it and promoted books for them when they got them, you know, published if I liked them. Um, I do think it's riddled with problems, you know, Um, but I've always had an interest in it. I've always done a bit of reading for people and, you know, that kind of way. Um, But I think there's an awful lot of stuff that just would never have been published by a publishing house. You know, that's getting through because people are putting basically getting it printed and, you know, selling via Amazon or whatever and to local bookshops. And sometimes it's brilliant, but more often than not, it's it's not. Uh, It's amazing that in the United States of America, Mm -hmm. Uh, more than half of all the books sold are now self-published. Yeah. And it's amazing that in the UK, Mm. uh, I think it's a third approaching a half, Mm. according to the people in Nielsen's, although they're not able to put an exact figure. No, because a lot of it won't be ISBN, or if it is, it's not linked into Nielsen, so they can't see the sales. Nielsen is um, the software that, that tracks the sales of books, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to register your ISBN with them to know where it's selling and how much it's selling. So there's a huge amount of stuff that would go under the radar that wouldn't be on Nielsen. Yes. So if I put in the ISBN into a system, it wouldn't bring anything up, you know. Yeah. Um, so it is interesting. It's very interesting that there has been a consistent uh, production of about 2,000 books per year Mm. in Ireland. Mm. 2,000. Mm. Um, And uh, the figure may increase in recent times because a great number of people are what they call journaling. They're being advised to write down their thoughts, Mm. going through therapies and... Mm. Counselors are saying to them, mm. you know, right, and then they get the idea that they should uh, convey that work into print. Yeah, that happens. Yeah, <laughs> so it's all good. I mean, yeah, uh, it's my firm belief that there is a an industry waiting to happen here in Ireland. Mm. But uh, uh, I I think that it's brilliant to people are going out and writing, but. The next step is to have a really good editor working with you and to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. I was listening to an interview with um, Anne Tyler. Do you know Anne Tyler? American novelist. She's in her 80s now. And she has published, you know, in the tens of books, like 50 novels or something like that. Um, And she said, the interviewer, it was Desert Island Discs which I love, right? 
And the interviewer said to her, what would you, what's your regret? You know, what would you do? And she said, I'd take back my first three books. I'm embarrassed by them because I didn't rewrite enough. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. I assumed I knew it all. I put them out. I was so proud of myself. And I assumed because somebody wanted to publish them that they must be brilliant. And she said, by comparison to what I did later, because I didn't have the rewrites and the rewrites, she'd take them back again and rewrite them and then put them out again. That's that was her regret. So I think that people, you're on such a high of writing a book that you can't kill your darling and come along and, and rewrite it and edit it. So really good editors and people who are working in books or read a lot will know straight away if somebody's had a brilliant editor working with them or not, I think. Yes, uh, the sad experience is that so many people uh, uh, input their manuscript into a PC mm. and send it off to one of a dozen or so uh, so-called publishers around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and it ends up, they end up cost, they end up, uh, it ends up costing them maybe oh, yeah. 20 or 25 grand. Yeah, without saying something I get in trouble for, it's, it's a racket. Yeah. yeah, it is a racket. There are, I, the, the, although there are a few good ones. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, however, um, uh, if I have a book and I wish to pitch it to a publisher, would you know what I should do? At my end of it. Or if I have a manuscript, I mean. Yeah. If you have a manuscript, find publishers who are taking submissions in the first place. A lot of them aren't. A lot of them don't have open sub submissions. You can't just send anything. I've discovered them. that. Yeah. Um, most of them, in fact. Most of them, in fact. Yeah, they're actually cherry picking now, aren't they? Yeah. They're, they're cherry picking um, and they are looking for writers who already have a built in sales um, following or whatever you want to say, because they're either well known or they're a celebrity or, you know, things like that. So and there, there are right. But the first thing I would say is look for an agent. You know, and the second thing I would say is find someone with an editor who's going to take it on. Um, uh, looking for an agent is also a problem mm. because so many agents will reject. Well, they're in the UK as well, which is another one. Yeah. There, I don't I don't know if there's a literary agent operating in Ireland now, but there wasn't. Well, there started. are there are two or three. OK, that's good. Mm. That's better than nothing. And uh, there are agents for London mm. and American houses. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's the first thing. And if you can get it to even proofreaders and editors before it even hits the publishers, get friends, get people who know what they're talking about to come and look at it and take their advice. You know, um, the nonfiction publishing is a different story at the moment, I think. But for the fiction, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, uh, friends can be your worst enemies. Oh, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. they don't tell you the truth. Yeah. Well, maybe just find people in the industry, somebody who is willing to, to read it for you and read it well. And, you know, uh, if I have a book, then should I approach you first? I won't blow my own trumpet. I've done it for people. You know, and I enjoy doing it, but whether I'm any good at it would remain to be seen. But yeah, I read a lot. You'd know the difference between good and bad. Oh, I hope so. 
I certainly would. Do you know what? My partner gets sick of listening to me because I'll pick up on grammar and anywhere and everywhere. It drives me insane. Badly written advertising, badly written anything, you know, badly written back of a cornflakes packet will annoy me. But that's <laughs> and I'll start. bang on about it, you know. So at least with that, I'm OK, you know, and in terms of narrative and, and fiction, and creative writing, um, I know what I love, you know. Uh, the famous uh, Con Houlihan mm. uh, said a man who would misplace an apostrophe mm. is capable of anything. <laughs> Don't trust them. So, um, so I've got, we'll assume that I've got this manuscript mm. and uh, I should therefore seek out a good editor mm. or a good agent mm. or both. Yeah, or both. And uh, I should write it and rewrite it. Mm -hmm. And it has been said by some writer that when you have written something that you admire, written something that you yourself admire, mm -hmm. you should strike it out. That's a bit cruel, isn't That's it? That's one of my lecturers said to me. Words to that effect. Murder yeah. your darlings. Yeah, kill your darlings. Joseph O'Connor um, was given a, a talk once that I was at and somebody asked this question, you know, when you were a teenager, how did you learn to write? And I can't remember what the book was, but he copied someone else's book out word for word in his spare time. He wrote the whole thing out like a medieval scribe, just so it would go into his head and stay there so that the form and would somehow imprint on him and he would become a good writer. And that was, that's what he, and then that made him realise how blimmin' difficult it was, you know, but like him or love him or, you know, not at all. Um, oh, he's a great he's, writer. He is a great writer. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he's a nice person. He's a lovely person. He'd talk to anyone about it, you know. Ah, oh, that's great. Yeah. I remember sitting across a desk from a man whose nickname around the country was Cowjack. Cowjack? Uh, yeah. His name was Michael Dillon. Right. He used to write for the Irish Times. Okay. Uh, but he used to also write uh, or present a programme on RT called Mart and Market. I don't know that. Oh, about the... F about the, about, uh, the prices. Yeah, yeah. Of hoggets and... Yeah. <laughs> and bulls and bullocks. Yeah. Uh, um, however, I asked him about writing. Mm. And he said to me... Sure, writing is just talking, put down on paper. Yeah, kind of. It's kind of, but it's not as simple as that. No, it's not as no. simple as that. But yeah, but he was trying to be. He was trying to help me out. But some people are so adept at at speaking that, and that is a real gift, you know, to be able to speak off the cuff and really well. And some comedians have it. Those people might well be able to just put their words down on paper without going through any of these painful processes um but i think it's the painful processes that bring out the best you know you can't kind of go in with a rough hewn piece of stone you have to knock it back and knock it back and knock it back till you get a lovely that's a terrible analogy but yeah um i heard that it takes on average two years to write a book yeah and an average is is misleading uh, yeah. Because I've met some people who have taken 10 years to read yeah. books. Um, 
what about, what about the books that people have right and go back to 20 years later you know I hear, I hear about that as well there's um, a brilliant podcast called Always Take Notes um, and it's just interviews with writers about their process which is just so interesting but your man the guy who wrote Bridges of Madison, Madison County which is a brilliant book it's a novella it's, well it is a novel it's not it's not short enough to be a novella it took him six weeks in six weeks? In six weeks. He wrote that book. Yeah. Which became a well-known film yeah. starring Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood. and... Meryl well, Streep. Meryl Streep. Mm. And what's the other one? Mary Wesley. Do you remember Mary Wesley wrote Chamomile Lawn? Loads of other things. Sort of nice um, English novels with, you know... They weren't complete chiclet, but they were sort of literary romance, romantic type novels. And I think she was retired or semi-retired when she started writing. And her first novel was published without any edits. Without it wasn't edits. touched. Yeah, wasn't touched. She was that talented. There's a book called, it's, it's called The Chamomile Lawn. That's Brilliant amazing. Book. Yeah. Because you're reminding me of uh, Donna Cordooling in RTE. Oh, really? And uh, Donica did a 20-minute piece yeah. um, on a visit to Israel, yeah. a walk in Israel. Yeah. And uh, all the people around were wondering, where's the script? Because he didn't need one. But Donica did it yeah. uh, word perfect and time perfect. It's amazing. That's a, rare, that's a rare skill to have. What do they call it? Autodidacts. People who taught themselves to do that. You know, they just really talented people George Carlin was another one of them comedian George Carlin could just speak uh, there are I don't understand it mm -hmm. I mean uh, we're both here with our notes <laughs> I had to <laughs> I had to slave for hours to even construct a sentence mm. could you tell me about audiobooks and ebooks mm. So when I went into Bray, we were told that the book trade was under threat from these e-book things and they were going to ruin the business and especially children's books. Um, it was all doom and gloom, but it was very doom and gloom 2008 anyway, wasn't it? So first of all, children's books have only grown since then. It's the fastest growing area of publishing. Kids don't like e-books. When kids want books, they want actual paper. They want to collect them, they want to put them on their shelves, they want to talk about them, they want to swap them. So that um, that never happened. And ebooks did climb up, but then they sort of plateaued. And now a lot of people will have an e-reader to take on holidays. But if they're a book person, they'll also buy books. Do you know what I mean? So they'll have the e-reader, but they'll buy books as well. And I've, I love them. But the thing I love massively is audiobooks because I have two kids. You know, and it just means that I can have a book on in the house while he's out at work or whatever. And I'm running around doing my bits and pieces and I'm reading away. So I love audiobooks. Personally, I just hate when they um, abridge them too much. But I'll listen to books, no problem. Or out for a walk. You know. And uh, audiobooks make me think about poetry books. Do they, do they sell? Poetry is the hardest. Qu 
corner of the bookshop to get Move. selling. To yeah. get selling. Yeah, it is harder. They're yeah. hard to display. They're hard to sell. You know, they're an acquired taste. There's been a funny little revolution um, in poetry in that there is a girl. I can't remember her name. She's best selling poet at the moment. And she started writing poems and putting them out on Instagram. And that's where her career came from. So Kumar is her surname, K-U-M-A-R. Um, and she does beautiful poetry. But the odd thing is that it sells really well, you know. And poetry in Ireland sells quite well compared to the rest of the world. So Irish people buy more poetry than a lot of other countries, but still not a huge amount, you know. Yeah, I presume lots of people would buy uh, books by Seamus Heaney and by mm. Brendan Canelli. Yeah, Paul uh, Meehan. Paul Meehan. Paula Meehan. Oh, Paula well. Meehan. Yeah, some wax for connection with Paula Meehan as well. I can't remember what it is. Really? Yeah. Um. So, e-books. Yeah. Are they beginning to plateau? Oh, they have plateaued. Yeah. So they're there and they can be bought and people are, people love their e-readers, but most people who have an e-reader, as I said before, will have tons of other books in paperback and hardback as well. You know, it's just another format. It's nothing to be worried about, I don't think. Uh, the Wexford author, mm. Nicky Furlong, mm -hmm. who wrote a, a classic novel titled Young Farmer Seeks Wife. Right in his latter years, uh, narrated uh, his own book, mm. Young Farmer Seeks Wife. Mm. It's now waiting uh, it? to escape out to the world. Oh, it's wow. In a, it's in a place called Wisconsin in the United States, waiting there for the right moment. And is it going to go on Audible? Oh, it will yeah. be on every platform on the oh, planet. Oh, brilliant. Yes. Ah, oh, So that's part of his legacy. Oh, isn't that lovely? Yeah. Um, so, um, how many books would you read in a week? Oh, I'm so slow now compared to what I used to be. Um, I'm one of these devils who, who would read three books at a time though, because I'll flick between different books. You'd flick between yeah. books? Yeah. You'd Is that very strange? Each, you'd have one in each of your three hands. Yeah. <laughs> and the baby on my back. I want um, that, uh, no hand for... The cup of tea. No, no. You need no time hand. for a cup of tea. No time for a cup of tea. No, I tell you what I do is I'll have one on audiobook. So I have, at the moment, I have a Hilary Mantel book on audiobook, which I keep on having to rewind and go back through because it's so heavy going. And then I'll have something that I'll read in my hand, you know, as well. At so. the same time, while you're walking around the house or. No, just, out yeah. Ambition. Yeah. It's strange, isn't it? But I used to read a lot for um, for work, you know, because I'd want to be able to recommend books or whatever. And you like when somebody come into a bookshop when I was there, I would always find out what they read before and then use that against them and, and get them to buy loads of books. I could recommend them. You can't do that unless you're reading all the time, you know, and I so, would be reading all the time. So are readers creatures of habit then? I actually uh, find no, not necessarily. They will. There are people who come in and buy the newest of whomever, you know, um, but you'd always recommend them to somebody else as well, if you can. 
And then a lot of readers, if they know that you're a reader and that you're interested in books, they will take your word for it and buy something on your recommendation. You know, because books are thousands. How do you discern what you're going to be interested in unless you're keeping up with loads of media and reviews and all that kind of stuff? So a good bookseller is a very well, useful uh, person. I came across a shocking statistic a couple mm. of years back that the average sale of a book in Ireland sales in mm. numbers is 300 copies. That is depressing, isn't it? Really? And Where is that from? I wonder. And what brings that down? Like, is it... Janey Max. However, mm. the, there... Um, I think it's explained in that the... Um, the bestsellers are in the 10% mm. oh, yeah. of all books sold. Yeah. And uh, some authors will sell uh, 40,000 copies mm-hmm. and others will sell 10,000 copies. Mm-hmm. That's in that 10% bracket. Yeah. And the other 90%? The other 90% is... would drag it down to yeah. maybe... 100 copies. I know. I know. Uh, resulting in an average of maybe 300 sold. Yeah. So that's like that's statistics why statistics are, are very misleading, isn't they're it? They're misleading. Yeah, that's exactly. right. Yeah, yeah. But however, to climb up to become one of the 10%. Yeah. Or become one of the 5%. Mm-hmm. As Donald Ryan, the author of, uh, is it a spinning heart? Yeah, the spinning heart and something else. Found out that he yeah, yeah. Good for you. he made something like ten thousand a year. He couldn't mm. live on it. No. No, but some people do live on it. You know, but some people who have generated, like mm. P. D. James, uh, who wrote ninety books mm. or more. Yeah. Yeah, Nicky Farlow wrote nineteen books Gosh. and several plays, and. Uh, Thousands of articles for newspapers. You want to be spinning them out. Yeah. You know, one or two you books a year at that stage, wouldn't you? Yeah. All of the time. Yeah. Um, so what kind of books are the big sellers? Romance? Historical novels? In Ireland, in fiction, it's traditionally romance and thriller. Do you know? And then in non-fiction, we would... What do we do very well in? Huge amount of cookery stuff sells, a huge amount of, um, you know, uh, current affairs is what I'm looking for in Ireland. Current affairs. Current affairs. Yeah, current affairs and history will do well in non-fiction, you know. Like um, the Troubles. Yeah. The Arms Trial. Yeah. Um, the Crash. Yeah. Um, Brexit. Yeah. Fintan uh, O'Toole. Fintan O'Toole. Yeah. Yeah. He'd absolutely. be up there at the top, wouldn't he? Mm-hmm. So, book clubs. Mm-hmm. Do many book clubs call into you? We would have, in Dubray, we would have had a book club scheme quite early on. And then, I think, Cavan, we didn't really need it. And then in Wexford, there's also a book club uh, discount. So there's those book clubs and then there's the international book clubs of your Oprah book club or, you know, different things like that. There's a Pat Kenny does one and that'd be out on the radio. They'd be promoting that book that month. And that's a great thing, 
you know. So they do they do work and they do sell. Sometimes I wonder are book clubs more wine clubs, you know. So we had a fair few book clubs that wouldn't read the book. <laughs> they just go for the wine. So it is, yeah, it, it is a great thing for the book industry, but it's not as big a thing as people tend to think. Yeah. It will get Although I stumbled upon a book club meeting mm. in the in the horse and hound mm. in Ban Nabula. Oh yeah. One night. Wow. And they were uh, discussing very seriously a book by Henry Mantel. Oh yeah. You know, talked about earlier earlier. Yeah. yeah. Um so so a book club, if I'm a member of a book club, uh I can get a special discount in a lot of bookshops. Yeah, I think you need to register the book club with the bookshop and you know they will have their own way of doing it in every but it's a fairly common thing. Yeah. Ten or fifteen percent or something. Speaking of book clubs, there was a book club in Hell's Kitchen in New York and they read Finnegan's Wake for twenty five years. That's the only thing they read. It's nuts, isn't it? They met in a bar and they read Finnegan's Wake. Oh, I think that's a yeah. lovely and way to while away time in a bar. Yeah. And I think one guy's yeah. son inherited his place in in the book club and continued reading. I think in Wexford we need a a place like that. I think we need a speaker's corner. Oh, gosh, yeah. Wouldn't everybody could read their books out yeah. to yeah. an audience. Yeah, like in London. Yeah, like in London. Yeah. Could do it in the Bullerine. Or the mark in the Bullring in Wexford Town, or the market. Careful Square who you're letting in, in because <laughs> the market square in it's grotty. Probably likely to be, yeah. It's things there, ra- thrown at you. It's there <laughs> underneath the statue of Father John Murphy and the coffee yeah. boy. Yeah. Uh, he's pointing uh, towards Vinegar Hill. We should definitely set mm. that up. Yes, and Enniscorthy is great. That's a great square for anything like that. Well, you know, I love the Scorthy. Isn't that amazing? I've come across more and more people who love Ennis Gorthy, including Anne Doyle, former newsreader. Yeah. Who is, um, she's coming to Wexford again shortly. Of course, she's an ambassador for Wexford. Yeah, she's talking yeah. about Wexford potatoes on the radio last time I heard her. She's <laughs> she, was, she was talking about Wexford potatoes on Wexford the radio. Potatoes. I think she was just on, you know, one of the, uh, the interview programmes and she was talking about going home from Wexford. She would always pick up strawberries and potatoes. In the summertime. Yeah, well, yeah. She, of course, she lived in the middle of it. She would have grown up. She grew up in Ferns mm. and the Harrow and places like that. Yeah. Biblical places like Boule of Oak would have been nearby. So um, for the sale of a book, uh, is publicity important? In Ireland, radio is a huge influence, I think. You know, if you can get if if somebody is talking about a book on the radio and it's any particular people on the radio, any particular hosts on the radio will drive book sales. Absolutely. You know, um, a certain one on RT morning radio will do that um, and has very good taste. So that would work really well. Word Pat of mouth. Kenny. Word yeah, of Pat mouth. Ke- word of mouth. Pat Kenny as well. He does a book club with Eason's, I think. But word of mouth in Ireland is huge. Um, Irish book buyers are really, really discerning. We buy a lot of books. Um, we talk about books. We're a good nation of readers still, you know. 
Um, because we have a lot of bookshops in this country still going, even independent bookshops that are still going. We've got a really good one in Wexford. So it's we're a nation of book buyers. Publicity, I think a lot of people think, oh, if I get publicity behind it, it's going to blow up. Not necessarily. Agreed. You know? I've seen books on television, mm. national television, radio, mm. national newspapers, half yeah. pages, and they would hardly move the book. Mm. I think social media will sell more books now than a lot of things. Instagram sells books. Now, here's a, a question. Mm. Uh, the number of books that are coming in here from the UK dumped yeah. on us yeah. and from America, um, they are muddying the waters compared to 20 years ago. Mm. Books coming in from the UK. In other words, uh, we once almost had a monopoly on our market here. Yeah. Uh, but now that's been that's been interfered with by all the books coming from across the world. Yeah. I mean, our book market is intrinsically mixed with the UK book market. So the distri distribution is in the UK. We're considered part of the UK market. Um, American books don't necessarily come in here that quickly. And if they do, they would come in under a, a UK and Irish edition most of the time um, and get a new ISBN and be in, in this, you know, distributed by a UK distributor. So, but it is a really, and once you're in the English speaking world, it's a really international market, you know, and I don't I think you can get a book published in Ireland and it could do well in Ireland, but it, whether it, it, it needs to go to the UK to make money, I think, you know, and to have sales outside of Ireland to make good money, I think. Um, do you need a separate ISBN for the American market? I think so. Yeah. But there is no equivalent ISBN in, in the United States. Nothing I exclusively. I think logs. you can. Yeah, I think you can sell a book. Yeah, I think you can send a book over there. But if you want a, an American edition, it has to have a new ISBN. Okay. You know, you can import. Uh, I used, we used to order books from the States and then it'd take a really long time. It was one distributor doing it, you know. So it is, a, it is a very different market and you'd know them straight away. They're quite different. They're lovely, some of them. How many states are in, in America? And that each one is a market. God. Mm. So in other words, you have to tar uh, uh, go to each one uh, at the time. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that is amazing. So it's not uh, India or China would be easier to break into. Isn't that crazy? Mm. See, America's so different from places. I mean, think about New York and then compare it to Ohio. They're completely different places. They're different, different cultures. Yeah. They're different. Different cultures. You know, yeah. And we just sort of see it all as one big homogenic, you mm. know, American television culture. They're not like that at all. Uh, could you tell me, Josie? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm thinking about all those writers, potential writers, uh, would be writers, mm. and writers who have had um, failures, flops. Yeah. Um, have you any tricks of the trade that you could give me or give those listeners? Good rep. A good rep. Yeah, a good publisher's rep. 
on the road. A good orders. editor. A good so editor. Yeah, a but that's when you've editor. got the finished product, but a good editor. So if you could give me those again, you need a good editor. Yeah. You need a good proofreader. Yeah. You need a good designer. designer. And then when it actually comes into a product, you need a really good rep on the road. And you need a you rep know? on the road. Somebody that will go visit the bookshop. Yeah. So you need deep pockets if you're going to publish a book. I think so. Yeah. Or you need a good publisher who'll get behind you. Or a good publisher. Yeah. Who will get behind yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. And you can't. I you know this thing they talk about now is the death of the expert. You know, there's no experts in anything anymore. Everybody is, you know, sort of half versed in something. So they take it on. Right. And in some ways, that's very liberating. But in terms of books, you need to have a standard that you can expect when you open a book, that it has been it has gone through these processes, that it has had, you know, four or five sets of hands look over it. A really good editor who badgers the, the author until they're, you know, sick of them. And sometimes you get a rambling book. And you know that the editor's been shut up, you know, or hasn't been there at all. And it's incredible. So, yeah, it's very sad. And I think there's some books I see that you're going, God, if somebody had really taken that on and given a good representation and given it a good editorial process, it might have been a completely different thing. And it had so much potential, you know. Uh, in your opinion, are there more books being sold today in 2022 than there were 10 years ago yeah absolutely 10 years ago we were still economically fairly you know people didn't have the same um money in their pocket to spend on a book right we've had the pandemic which book sales were through the roof and you know the main book center in wexford uh, sorry Waterford. They were working around the clock to fill orders, you know, um, they were in there until 10, 11 o'clock at night packing stuff. And they all had letters as essential workers because the business didn't shut down. And I think there's at least a 25 percent jump in book sales since the pandemic might have flattened out a little bit now, but it's still going really well. You know, um, Dubray have opened extra branches. The book centre in Wexford, I was in the other day and I. You know, I couldn't talk to anyone. <laughs> I went in for a chat and I couldn't talk to anyone. So there are, and the sales are reflected, um, you know, when you look at the actual numbers. And then when you consider that a lot of that doesn't count local bestsellers, people who have self-published, you know, or they're selling through their local GAA club or whatever, they're still books. So we are a nation of book buyers, big time. Uh, do you find, Josie, that... Um people prefer a particular size of book uh, because they may find the big door stoppers too heavy or intimidating intimidating yeah. or too big and um, I'm, I'm thinking of a context of the intervening variables of Netflix and Disney and smartphones and all of that yeah now there's a difference between the amount of people buying books and the amount of people actually finishing those books, reading them. I think a lot of people will buy a book as a kind of, it's it's something they want to do, they're aspiring to it, it's a, you know, they really want to read that book at the time and it goes in the to-be-read pile 
and the to be read pile gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the next month they hear about something else that they want to read and it goes in the to be read pile and then they go and watch reruns of The Wire on Netflix, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it is it is there. We are buying more books, whether we're finishing them all and reading them all is another thing entirely. Um, and I do think it is competing for space at social media and all that kind of stuff. But there's a huge, you know, there's a lot of younger guys going around with books with them, you know, reviewing them on Instagram and stuff. So there are um, younger people coming up and reading a lot, you know, and I met them in bookshops and they're there. Another question I'd like to ask mm. is, and I don't want to exhaust you okay. uh, this time because yeah. uh, we'd like to have you back again and again You're and again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is, uh, is it true that 65% of uh, books are sold in the months of October, November, December? Yes. That pays the rent. <laughs> that does everything. Absolutely. So you'd be, you'd be kind of breaking even the rest of the time then book sales jump from about the end of september october and then you'd be doing yeah at least half of your sales are in those months huh. yeah at well, least, least half, half of your sales are november december for the full year so for the full year yeah that's so amazing that's, that's half your money is made there at least now it might be more depending on the local climate um if you're in dublin if you're on grafton street it's going to be more than that because that's a Christmas shopping area. If you're at a smaller local bookshop, the bump might not be as big, but you might have a more continuous, loyal um, demographic around you the rest of the time. So beach books, which would be sold in May, mm. J- April, May, mm. June, July, mm-hmm. uh, they would have a, a spike, I presume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Airport books would be sold all the year round. Oh, they're, yeah, they're sort of beach books, aren't they? The ones, you, the airport, the, the crime thriller and the the ladies book traditionally and the, the man's book traditionally. The management yeah, book. Yeah. Be up there. Um, I never worked in any of the airport bookshops. And I know that, you know, in Ireland we get something called a trade paperback, um, which is a large format paperback. It's the same size as a hardback, but it has a soft cover. And it will be released at the same time as the hardback for the Irish market. Most other countries, you're only allowed to sell them in the airport. And in Ireland, distribution is across the country because Irish people won't wait for the paperback. They want to read the book straight away. So that's why we will, we will actually sell those. trade. We call them trade paperbacks. You might call them airport editions. Mm-hmm. Um, so they fly out kind of May onwards and um, would bump I used to be really snobby when I was younger, you know, about books. Um, I stick my nose up in the air at Chiclet and all that. And I never forget saying it to wonderful rep from Hachette, um, who's still going. And she's just brilliant, Ruth. But I said to her, like, oh, I can't I can't bear any of these awful Chiclets. You know, what's happening to art and feminism? And, <laughs> and she just I started clutching my mouth. And she said, um, yeah, they float everything else. You know, that that imprint that sells the women's romance is floating the the newly published author or, you know, somebody who's written a literary fiction that nobody thinks is going to sell, but it's worth publishing. That's where, you know, I've just been on 
the website, the Ricochet Book Club. Oh, yeah. And I've, I've read reviews mm-hmm. uh, and people saying, uh, I found this book terribly heavy. Yeah. I got stuck halfway and I left it down. Yeah. Life's too short to read books that you don't like. There's enough of them out there. Somebody else is going to love that book and they're going to read it in two nights. But if you're not into it, you're not into it. That's fine. Um, I, I do say to people, give it 40 pages. I just picked a number. But it, it seems to me that if, if you're reading 40 pages and you don't like it or you can't get into it, it's not for you. Don't read it. Unless you're in a book club and you're trying to force yourself to do X, Y and Z and expand your horizons. Um, but there's also been books that I have read 40 pages of and I said, oh, I'm not reading this. This is awful. And two years later, I loved it. So it depends on your headspace as well. But it shouldn't be a chore. And it, as you said earlier, it, books are competing as a piece of media. They're competing so much with other forms of entertainment that you need to enjoy them. And you don't need to be telling people, oh, this is a worthy pursuit and you must sit down. You know, like reading used to be a kind of a an, an act of sedition, an act of rebellion for women in, you know, in the 18th and 19th centuries. There was, you know, you had to keep it quiet that you were reading these novels that were, you know, affecting women's heart rate and and send their wombs wandering around their bodies. Terrifying. You know, there's loads of there's loads of good books out there that you're going to enjoy. Don't sit down. And I say that having been reading A Place of Greater Safety by Hilary Mandel for the past six weeks because I can't get through it. Um, But I want I've wanted to finish it for ages, so I will finish it. Uh, But life's too short to read a book you're not into. Uh, a concluding message of hope, of hope. or reality <laughs> uh, um, to writers in particular. I think Ireland's probably one of the best placed countries in the world for we have a fantastic reputation for writers. So you're automatically you've got not necessarily a foot in the door, but you have that whole ethos behind you of the culture of, you know, of really good writers. I do think that there are small publishers operating in the country that will absolutely sort of take on new books, right? It's just knowing the difference, looking for them and kill your darlings. Keep. Josie, that has been uh, enlightening, (laughs) illuminating and also entertaining. Um, Poor you. We look uh, we look forward to having you back mm. on the Rosler podcast again and again. Could you tell me where do people make contact with you? Josie well, Van Emden. Yeah. County Wexford. Yeah, I think I'm going to start a some sort of book Instagram now that I'm not working. I'm a full time mummy um, and I work for my partner's business as well. But I think I'm going to start a book Instagram page where I do book reviews. So as soon as I have that up, there's no point in going to my personal Facebook. Um, but once I have a book Instagram up, I'll give it to you guys and you can put it out and I'll do some book reviews and I might get some publishers to send me books and, and review them. Superb. Yeah. Many thanks. You're very welcome.
Keep on listening to TRP.